You're listening to the Technology for Mindfulness podcast, episode 59, hosted by me, Robert Plotkin. Today I'm going to be speaking with Dr. Tracy Dennis Tawari, a professor of psychology and digital mental health expert. Dr. Dennis Tawari was recently featured on ABC's Screen Time, looking at the proliferation and consequences of mobile devices in daily life. You can find out more at denistawari.com. That's D E N N I S T I W A R Y.com. I'm extremely pleased to welcome Dr. Tracy Dennis Tawari to the Technology for Mindfulness podcast. For today's tip, I'm going to take something that comes straight out of the interview you're about to hear with Dr. Tracy Dennis Tawari. I don't normally do this, but this is so valuable that I think it's worth hearing now, even though you're about to hear it again in the interview. But I'm going to make it as a suggestion now instead of just as an observation, which is that if you're in a face-to-face conversation with someone and your phone does something to grab your attention, like pop up a notification for a text message or a phone call comes in, the tip is pause first Ask yourself, do I need to respond to this now? And if not, put the phone back to sleep and put it away. If you do feel the need to respond right now, the tip is to say to the person that you're with, may I attend to this right now? And if they say no, put the phone back away. If they say yes, say something like, I'm just going to step away for a minute. I'll be right back. And then physically walk away. It might only be a few feet. It might be into another room where you then respond to that text message, pick up that phone call, take it, and set your intention to spend a very short amount of time, the least amount of time you need, out of a feeling of respect and desire to return to that face-to-face interaction you were just having. And then as soon as you complete whatever that interaction is on the phone, put your phone to sleep, put it away, and then go back to that person you were with and resume your face-to-face interaction with them with your full attention on them. This may sound simple, but this is one of those things which, if you're not used to doing it, may be simple to understand and really, really hard to do. But then notice what it feels like to do it. And you might even want to ask the other person you're with what that felt like. And if other people around you don't engage in this kind of practice, you might want to pay attention to what does it feel like when someone else is talking with you, laughing with you, sharing a meal with you, and then turns to their phone unexpectedly and without acknowledging it to you, without asking your permission, and then stays physically with you, but is away somewhere else in their mind while they're on their phone. How does that feel to you? So this is the suggestion. You're going to hear us talk a lot more about this. And Dr. Dennis Tawari is going to talk about the research uh, that supports some of our understanding of why and how this feels disconnecting to us. I think you're going to get a lot out of the interview as well. And I hope uh, you really enjoy the upcoming interview with Dr. Tracy Dennis-Tawari. Hi, Tracy, and welcome to the Technology for Mindfulness podcast. Thank you. It's such a pleasure to be speaking with you. 
it's great to have you. And I know from speaking with you before that we have so much that we could talk about <laughs> <Yes>. here today. <laughs> I, I wonder if you could just introduce your work and yourself uh, briefly to our listeners and, and talk about how it you know, relates to, to technology. And then, then, then we can launch into a, a lot of other things. Well, I'm a clinical psychologist by training and I retrained in neuroscience. And I'm a professor at the City University of New York at Hunter College in the Graduate Center of that university. And my main research really focuses on teen and adolescent wellness, emphasizing anxiety, suicidality, and the potential role that technology might play in those challenges. One thing that I think really brought me to being so passionate about thinking about the role of technology in our lives is that as a clinical psychologist about a decade ago, doing research on, on cognitive techniques to uh, remediate anxiety and, you know, really trying to reduce barriers uh, to accessibility, I realized, like many of us did, that technology offers amazing opportunities for increasing accessibility and engagement um, with, with clinically validated treatments. But at the same time, the digital ecosystem is not always really geared, I would say, I would even argue is rarely geared towards our wellness. It's really been designed for the bottom line of these companies that create the technology. So, so we're stuck with this amazing opportunity to reduce barriers, but how do we do that in a humane way in this somewhat toxic digital ecosystem? And that's particularly relevant for uh, teens and emerging adults. And so that's really where my research is focused. I've developed a digital therapeutic, an app to reduce anxiety called Personal Zen that really takes this goal of creating humane health technology to heart. It's a micro intervention. It doesn't disrupt people's lives. It can be used on the go. So that's, you know, you know that's part of what I've uh, tried to explore as a way to deal with this tension uh, between the opportunity, the, the kind of the, the, the promise and the perils of technology and wellness. Mm -hmm. Um, and I'm also really interested in mindfulness, although I don't have a formal background as, as many psychologists do in mindfulness research. I have explored uh, the role of mindfulness in, in youth well-being, and I've made uh, a film with a wonderful filmmaker named Susan Finley about, oh gosh, it might be uh, moving up on eight years ago now, called Changing Minds at Concord High about school-based mindfulness. So, you know, I think about mindfulness in a very direct way, too, and the role uh, and the incredible impact it can have in, in promoting the well-being of kids. Thanks for the, the overview. I maybe start with the, the perils, in part because of the research that you do. I think many of us have an intuitive understanding or belief from our experience that technology in recent years in particular has been contributing to what you mentioned as anxiety. Uh, maybe depression among teens. We know that these have always been problems, but it seems like they've been getting worse from technology. What can you tell us about how the research backs that up? This is, you know, as you as, as you alluded to, this is an incredibly fraught topic because the fact is we all know intuitively there's a problem here. You know, I do believe that technology has not been made to promote human well-being. And there are clear perils and costs to uh, the, the kinds of ways that technology can infiltrate our lives or disrupt our lives and our relationships. And at the same time, we know that technology affords us many wonderful opportunities as well. So we're, we're stuck in this place where we know these things intuitively. We see evidence around us, but the research is not caught up with our intuition. Mm -hmm. So the research base that's out there, it's, it's growing 
there's some good research, some, you know, highly suggestive research, but none of it is, you know, confirmatory. None of it's the last word on whether, well, it's the big question that we all wonder, right? Does technology cause mental illness or does it Mm -hmm. cause, directly cause distress? You know, one thing that, uh, you know, as an academic, I feel we have a very, we have a particularly strong ethical calling to uh, tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth when it comes Mm -hmm. to interpreting the data. And right now, I feel that there are many of us out there who, you know, and maybe many, I think many of us are well-intentioned. Others of us, you know, maybe, I don't know, not so much, but, mm-hmm. you know, people want to get their message out. And so to grab headlines, to grab attention, they tend to go to extremes in interpreting mm-hmm. what we know from the science. And I, I tend to call them the digital doomsayers and the digital naysayers. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're really on both ends of the spectrum. The people who say, you know, digital technology has destroyed the young generations and it's uh, wreaking havoc on the very fabric of our society. Whereas other people are saying, well, you know, the evidence isn't in. And honestly, we're all panicking and we're just going to get over this much like we got over the panic about right. Elvis's, you know, swinging hips in the 50s in the mm-hmm. early days mm-hmm. of rock and roll. And so I think the truth is somewhere in between and it's much more nuanced. So what the evidence tells us, though, right now, having said that it's not really adequate yet, what, what, what we know right now is that technology can get in the way of well-being. It probably drives the vicious cycle of anxiety, the vicious cycle of depression, because once we feel bad, we go to technology to kind of get lost. The way that we can disappear into our screens and to some of these less than healthy and supportive environments, like on social media, they can exacerbate anxiety. They can exacerbate depression. So we know that 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 the way we use technology can exacerbate our problems. But we also know, and there's some good experimental evidence, which is the gold standard, that using technology in more productive, creative ways and active ways might actually promote well-being and promote social connection. So the question is, how and for whom does technology help us and how does it hinder us? And we just have to do a lot more science on that. I want to ask you two questions, which I always know is dangerous. So maybe I'll put them in stages, which (laughs) is, uh, you know, what are some examples of the productive ways in which people, particularly young people, can use technology to ameliorate the problems and not exacerbate them? And then I'm sure there's more than just this challenge, but when someone, young person or not, is in a state of anxiety or depression, that may be exactly the state where they're not inclined to take that step towards using technology Mm. in that way that can pull them out. Mm -hmm. So even if there are ways that are available, what would you say to a young person or to a parent or a teacher to try to make that way of accessing change uh, actually happen? Those are great questions. One uh, way that uh, that there actually is, uh, this has been replicated in several research labs, including my own, one way that we can use social media in a way that's relatively positive rather than negative is what's been referred to as active social media use. And what that means is, and it's contrasted with passive. So active mm. social media use means, you know, you're posting something, you're sharing something, you're seeking out information in an active, engaged way. And that becomes clear how it's active when you contrast it with passive, which is scrolling through your feed and looking at the wonderful life of everyone else and feeling socially inferior, which, you know, all right. of us have probably experienced. <laughs> it's that downward, you know, it's that upward social comparison or, you know, that we all get stuck in because we often only post our perfect life uh, and right. we ignore all the messiness. So if you're constantly scrolling through and looking at other people and comparing your lives and being a passive consumer of information rather than an active 
participant, you're mu- the passive is much more likely to be associated with negative mood, de- decrements in your feelings of self-worth, you know, and it might exacerbate depression, anxiety, and all those kinds of things. So the one, you know, one piece of advice is that let's, you know, and we, we know this when we think about nutrition, there's junk food <laughs> and there's right, healthy right. food. A healthier right. way to use social media, for example, is to be more active and creative rather than passive and, con- and, and a consumer. So that's one mm-hmm. thing to think about it. I loved your point about the fact that when we're anxious or depressed or down, that it's going to be harder to do those active things, that maybe we just want to get lost in our feed and just see what, you know, what's on Instagram and, you know, and, but, you know, if we go in with the knowledge, maybe we know this already without a researcher telling you that that's just going to make the problem worse. It's going to make us sink lower. You know, it just might be that extra reminder to decide or to choose if I want to choose, um, uh, you know, something that can actually make me feel better now, it's not going to be getting lost in my feed. And, you know, the other thing that I, I talk a lot about um, as crucial with anxiety and, and, and screens is that anxiety, one of the linchpins to keep anxiety accelerating and increasing is to avoid your experience of anxiety rather than engage mm-hmm. with it, is to try to numb it, to dull it, rather than engage it and actually figure out how to work with that anxiety in the moment. And what I think of, I think of mobile devices, I think of social media as this sort of ultimate escape machines, as these ultimate forms of avoidance. So if we know we're anxious and we say, I'm just going to get lost in, you know, my, my device right now, we can be pretty sure that we might end up feeling more anxious on the other side of that. Mm. And so with that knowledge, we can make hopefully better choices um, and also kind of understanding the mechanics of how anxiety can work in our lives. That's really a a great suggestion because it may seem counterintuitive to people in part because I know from experience that even though I know from experience that going to the phone and using it can lead me feeling worse, beforehand, my mind and body can convince me (laughs) that going to the phone is going to make me feel better. A (laughs) hundred (laughs) percent. That's right. So sometimes, and you know, these become, and this is the other thing about how devices have been designed and about, you know, kind of the broad field of, of, you know, digital technology. It's made to create these automatic habits, these reflexive things we do. We reach for the phone, we get it out of our pocket. We don't even know we're holding it half the time. Mm -hmm. That's not an accident, (laughs) you know? And, you know, as we become aware of how these companies are hijacking the automaticity of the appeal of, of these devices and what, and what we can access through them, then that gives us the opportunity to take a step back and be more deliberative. You know, your podcast is about mindfulness and that's exactly a key component of mindfulness, getting that space between reaction and action and being able to make more uh, meaningful choices and more, um, you know, purposeful choices. Yeah, it, it is so hard. Uh, I just want to acknowledge for people that how hard it can be to gain even a few seconds of space when the opportunity is presented constantly to us by the phone and other devices to have that space filled up. You know, I, I remind myself of that when I get pulled in and then I'm feeling the self-judgment, which can then mm-hmm. pile on top of itself. That, uh-huh. yeah, these things are designed to really pull us in and give us a constant opportunity to not be present with what we're feeling. I have the same struggle. And, you know, I have two young children who are almost eight and almost 11. And talk about the guilt that we all of us parents experience as well. Mm-hmm. You, with that, when you get pulled in in those ways, 
It's also interesting to remind ourselves that they've been designed that way. They could have been designed to be invisible. They could have been designed to not interrupt our day and our relationships in our life. And they obviously were not (laughs) because they need, you need eyeballs on the screen. They need our data to, uh, you know, because that's the business model. So when we remember that, that they're not meant to be invisible, that again, gives us more ammunition, I think, to find um, not just, you know, in the guilt to try to let go of that and just to see what we're contending with and make choices that, that serve us as, as digit, as aware digital citizens. You know, there was a, um, designer. He passed away at a young age, a member named Mark Weiser, who was at, I believe, Park, P-A-R-C. And he had made this statement. He he founded a movement variably called either invisible computing or pervasive computing. And he said, you know, a good, a good tool is one that's invisible when, for example, eyeglasses. When you put on eyeglasses, you see the world, not the glasses. Right. And so from his point of view, a good tool is one that exactly like you said, you don't see. And the fact that you could from that perspective, you can see the extent to which smartphones are so present in our awareness as just a horrible design flaw. At least from oh. the perspective of us as the people well, using that's them. That's right. It's not a flaw at all. It's, I'm sure they've poured millions and God knows how many tens of millions into making it exactly that. Yeah, that's right. It's an that's ethical right. flaw. I think it's. I think it's profoundly unethical. But right, that is, and we forget that that it could be a different way. And there are other technologies that are a different way. And 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 I always am aware of the fact that even computer technology was once a different way. It was not always this distracting. And that's a reminder that, as you said, this is a a choice that's made to design it like this. It's not inevitable. Right. And it's not the companies that are going to fix that. It's it's we who need to, you know, uh, that we need to apply pressure and raise awareness Mm -hmm. about this that we'll have to force them to the mat because there's no way that the people who caused this problem will ever easily hand over uh, a salute to become, as you said, invisible and use that kind of good design that supports our humanity. Yeah, that's right. It'll have to come from from a demand. I want to go a little bit back to another statement you made about guilt and parents feeling guilt. And I think that's a really powerful observation and something that, you know, parents may feel but maybe not be aware of or want to acknowledge. Can you talk a little bit about this, how that plays out, what impact it may have on how people parent and, and on their children and on the parent-child relationship? I think this is for we parents who, you know, I speak to parents who have kids who are slightly older than mine, and we've had a very different experiences of figuring out how technology works in our relationships and in our family life. Because when, you know, when the iPhone was first introduced, what was it, about 11 or 12 years ago now? We were all sort of in love with it, right? And it's this beautiful thing. And we were blindsided and we had no idea how it would start to operate in our lives. And we parents also didn't know how to help our kids with that. You know, and then fast forward five, six, seven years, and those of us with, you know, children who are now starting to think about using devices, we just have so much more awareness, ammunition, discussion points so that we can make informed choices. So guilt, a little guilt is good. I mean, maybe I say that because I was, uh, mm-hmm. I was raised Catholic. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I, but, you know, a little guilt is good because it's a signal to us that there's something that's awry. As we parents make choices about technology for ourselves, we just have to make sure we're directly translating that to our, to our kids. I think that's one thing 
You know, if we are deciding, you know, screen time is exhausting, screen time is getting in the way, or I want to be, I want to make these choices about screen time. We just have to really make sure that that's being translated to our family life, the time we have together, and to how we help our kids figure out technology. A few years ago, we did a, a research study that was actually recently demonstrated on uh, the Diane Sawyer special called Screen Time on ABC, in which we had, we, the experiment was uh, asking parents to use devices in front of their young children, toddlers, uh, for just mm-hmm. a couple minutes. And we designed it to actually, to be a, a sort of digital version of a classic uh, ex- experiment in psychology called the still face. And the still, uh, yes. yes. And the still face is the experiment that was developed to actually study parental withdrawal and unresponsiveness, but, but a, a chronic form of that. So when parents are depressed or when there's neglect and, you know, what is the impact of just a, a few moments of unresponsiveness uh, between parent and child? And can we track that immediate response? And what does that mean for the broader problem? Can you explain, give people an example? Of, I mean, I've seen videos of that experiment and it is painful just to watch it. Right. So the, the way it works is that parents and it's either infants uh, or a young or a very, you know, a, a young toddler, they're playing face to face for a few moments. And they and, you know, with with a healthy parent child relationship, really the building block of that relationship that we developmental psychologists know is that that back and forth, that reciprocity, that sensitivity, that it's almost like a call and response between parent and child. We all know what it looks like. The baby smiles, the parent smiles, the, they make a funny noise, they laugh together. Like that call and response is how kids learn about being a social partner, how they learn about empathy, how they learn about, how they learn to, you know, regulate their own emotions. I mean, it's that back and forth that's really foundational. So the first part of the still face is to, just to get parents and kids going on, on that natural exchange. Then the parents are instructed for just two minutes to stop, to suddenly stop responding to their young child and hold their face still and make no verbal response. Don't change their face. Just be a blank slate for just two minutes. And what they found over decades of research using this is that in just, you know, a minute or two, the child goes through several stages. First, they try to regain the parent's attention. They use every trick in their book. Sometimes they're just six months old, but Mm -hmm. they, you know, they make a funny face or they make a sound and they, Mm -hmm. and very soon within just, and you've you've probably seen this if you've seen the videos within just a minute or so, children become quite distressed and even despondent. And they start sort of giving up when this expected mm-hmm. connection with their parent is broken. And the third part of the still phase is the repair. So then the parents re-engage and everything is, you know, and when you have a healthy parent-child uh, dyad, you find that that re-engagement, even though there's often a tiny bit of negativity that trickles in, that remains during the reunion period, you know, people, we're, we're, we parents and kids are able to re-engage and to start uh, that, uh, establishing that nice synchrony and call and response again. So this is a very fascinating study. And we, and we started to realize, you know, the way that parents uh, use devices in front of their kids when they're all of a sudden on this device and they're totally unresponsive to their kid, it's sort of like a big, giant still face, <laughs> you know, in, a, yes, in, a, yes. in the world. And so what we did is we simply replicated the still face experiment. But instead of the parent holding their face still, we had them use their device in front of their child for just a couple minutes. And we found that that operated much the same way as the traditional still face. We thought even perhaps even more interestingly, that reunion period, which kind of is a, is a litmus test of the health of the parent-child relationship, that being able to reconnect afterwards that we found that it was a little harder for kids to reconnect when parents reported that they used devices a lot in front of their kids at home. 
so what that started to give us a hint about was what was two things really one that when we are on our devices in front of our kids not just once or twice i mean that's you know that's ex- to be expected but if we're chronically on devices in front of our kids unresponsive breaking that beautiful call and response that's the bedrock of that relationship we do that over and over again and we fail to repair it in healthy ways then we may actually be you know, compromising our child's ability to be emotionally resilient in our relationship to, you know, we might be compromising those very special moments, those precious moments that we have to connect with our kids to kind of, we see, you know, we find humanity in each other's eyes and we're constantly taking our eyes away from each other when we're, we have our heads down looking at these screens. So I know that you've already said you, you want to be cautious about drawing conclusions from research that's preliminary. So I won't ask you to do that, but I wonder (laughs) if you could talk to, you know, what are, when you talk about a repair attempts for parents out there who are thinking, oh, wow, I see myself in what you're talking about. And let's say that it will be difficult for parents to change their behavior overnight, which I can understand, to not be on their phones or on their phones as much when they're around their kids. What if we started with repair? When you talk about repair, What are examples of what that looks Mm -hmm. like and maybe some ways in which parents could start to do more of that repair or do it differently Mm -hmm. in in response to what you've learned from this experiment and your other work? There's a couple things I think uh, I would suggest. Um, One is that what we realized was different with our still face with the device compared to the original still face is that we take away eye contact when we do it with the device. Whereas with the original still face, you know, at least the facial, you know, you can still see your parents' face, the eyes are there. But here we've removed the eyes and, you know, humans have evolved to use the eye, you know, kind of to make uh, eye contact with each other and use that information to make sense of the world, especially children. And so one thing I, I think a lot about in terms of advice to parents is to say, you know, realize the preciousness of that connection through the eyes. And if we're constantly sneaking glances to our screens, if we're constantly removing that, that's something that that is a fundamental aspect of what it means to be a human with each other. So mm-hmm. I don't want to overstate that that means we're destroying our humanity or I would never say anything like right. that, but those are precious moments. We know they're building blocks of development. So what I would say is if you're going to use your device, have that time marked out, tell your child, if you're with your child and you say, you know, I have to make this, you know, make this call or write this email or whatever I have to do. I'm going to go over here and do this. You know, I'm going to separate myself out of our relationship time. I'm going to just take it over here. I'm going to do that. And then I'm going to come back so that now mm-hmm. It becomes something the child can predict. It's not that I'm, you know, the incursion of that screen time is not interrupting the flow of our relationship time. And it's natural. I mean, parents have to do things sometimes. When my mom was right. on the phone, right, when, when I was growing up, it was nailed to the wall or whatever. But, you know, I would be like, mom, mom. And she'd, I'd see her eyes and she'd say one, you know, she'd hold up a finger <laughs> or something and say one minute. <laughs> or she'd bat me away and say, you know, it's going to be a while or whatever it is. But I had some information and it didn't feel like right. she was disappearing. And so I think just when we use screens, don't use them in front of your kid, just go somewhere else and use them. I actually think that can have a very positive um, impact or or rather reduce the potential negative impact um, as we figure out how negative that impact is. Does that does that make sense? It does. It actually resonates a lot with me. And I'm not a research psychologist, so I'm not bound (laughs) to not draw conclusions. (laughs) But I'll just say, you know, it resonates with my own experience as an adult that there is a difference between someone who, let's say, I'm talking to face to face, 
then responding to a text or phone call without saying anything and just turning their head and eyes away from me in response to the phone and looking at it. The difference between that and them at least saying, I'm going to take this for a minute, or may I take this for a minute? And as you said, then walking away. There is something to me about the person staying physically in front of me as if we were talking, but having their attention be elsewhere that feels actually more disconnecting Mm -hmm. than them not physically being in front of me anymore. I mean, that's my intuition as well. And we got hints of that in the the research. You know, when, when they demonstrated the study on the Diane Sawyer special, in a way, I saw it anew <laughs> because, you know, you have your research. <laughs> but when you really see it demonstrated so skillfully on TV, the experience that these kids had, we, we had four or five kids kind of re, you know, kind of do the experiment, so to speak, in front of this film crew. It was very clear to me that the kids felt as if the parents had disappeared, yes. as if they'd left in a way that was, and one, you know, one, um, you know, some kids really protested, but this a whole other group of kids Actually, one little girl in particular, her mom got on the device and instead of trying to say, oh, mom, 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 let's keep playing. or let, She literally was silent, pulled up a chair and she could have played with toys and kept herself busy. Instead, mm-hmm. she pulled up a chair and just sat there and looked at her mom and waited. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it was so mm-hmm. striking. So this, right, this sense of not only you're still in the relationship with me, but you're not. And it feels like you've disappeared. Right. And that thing is much more important than me. So on yes. all those levels, it feels much more to me, as you, you know, as you were just saying, disruptive or dis- you know, kind of counter to our our relationship than just saying, "I'm so sorry, I have to take this. I'm going to go and do this over here, and then come back to our relationship." Yeah, I mean, there is something about. I wonder evolutionarily uh, if we evolve to link someone being physically present with them being present in their interaction with us and them being not physically present with them not interacting. And there is something that feels, I don't know, uncanny to us Mm. about the combination of someone being with us, interacting with us, and then in the blink of an eye, still physically being there, but not being there relationally Mm. or mentally. Uncanny, that's a good word. Yeah. Yeah, you know, it just may not be an experience that we evolve to have very often. What would happen? You're talking to someone and then, you know, there's a lion in the brush there. At least probably both of you would have heard it. And if one person turned away, the other person would know why. I'm so glad you brought this up because I've recently in the just the past few months learned uh, an evolutionary fact that informs a lot of how I think about (laughs) the role of joint attention between people Mm. and and the sharing of eye gaze. So humans, our eyes have evolved in ways that optimize our ability to track each other's attention, our gaze. So Mm. the whites around our, our irises and our pupils are much larger than in primates. If you look at a primate eye, it's sort of brown okay. and then brown on the outsides where ours are white and kind of black. And most primates, you literally, it's not high contrast. So you can't really track the direction of gaze in primates. But in humans, mm. it's like you have this big, <laughs> you know, <it's> this big <laughs> high contrast circle, uh, which is the center of our eyes, our accordion, our people. And we can, with exquisite accuracy, track where our social partner is looking. And a lot of people uh, have started to talk about this as an evolutionary design feature that highlights how important shared gaze and our ability to share intention through sharing our that gaze is to our ability to think and to communicate and to 
problem solve and cooperate. Yeah, I know we're starting to speculate about things that we may not have proof of, but it, it does make me think this is just consistent with my intuitive feeling when I'm in these experiences, talking with someone face to face, and then they turn down at their phone. Right. Right. They are now somewhere else mentally that I can't share with them, particularly if the phone is pointed at their face and not at mine, which would be, again, in a way in which this is unlike a situation we would have evolved in where we, as you said, we both turn in the same direction. We might see each other's eyes, but also then both be looking at the same thing. That It's not that one of us is then somewhere else and the other one is still looking for connection when, from the person who's there but is unable to mm-hmm. get it. And this is, how it, this is how I think it feels to me about why there's something so jarring uh, about the person turning no, away. They're no, now no. looking at their phone. I don't know what they're doing. I don't know what they're seeing. All I can do is kind of wait it out and I'm left in the dark. Yes, you have no cues. All social cues have been, in most cases, have been cut off. So you can't even anticipate when they'll be back, which is a different kind of experience because it's just, you're like a zombie on that screen. When we, you know, we all know what it feels like when you get sucked. We say it's sucked into a screen. We say it that way for a reason. And, you know, humans, you know, so primates, they have language and tool use and sophisticated social structures, but you know what they don't have? They don't have joint Mm. attention. Primates do not use the eye gaze of their social partner to coordinate efforts during a task or during cooperation, but humans do. And people have started to uh, argue that part of that, that ability to use joint attention, to the share gaze Mm -hmm. and to make meaning in the world through that might be one of the things that contributes to our unique intellectual abilities as humans and has driven some of our evolution. So what does it mean now that we're constantly cutting off (laughs) that shared gaze and attention (laughs) using devices? Well, we don't know yet, but that's something that I'm really interested in sort of using as a, as a, as a a rationale for, you know, additional research questions and, and, and dialogue and and talking about that issue. Great. Uh, I'd love to keep going here, but let's, (laughs) this is such a, such a fascinating, fascinating direction to go in. I mean, it does make me think about why, let's say, watching a movie or television although into extremes can have its own problems, but can feel like a connecting experience if you're sitting with other people. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm guessing this is how, again, how it feels to me. You can tell me whether the science facts it. You're engaged in the same experience. You're looking at the same thing. And to some extent, it's more like you are engaged in an experience together. You may not be looking at each other, but there's something shared about the experience that's not true when one person's looking at the phone and the other the, the other isn't. That's a great point. I, I, that's a really interesting point. Yeah. So maybe we can turn this back to parenting and, and relationships. You know, I did, we started by me asking you about what parents can do to to repair. What other suggestions do you have to parents, knowing that just not using technology isn't isn't an option? Any other things that are, I don't want to say easy to do, but might be relatively simple for parents to do in terms of changing uh, their own behavior in a way to address some of these uh, problems that you're, uh, you're noting? Yeah, I think, you know, besides this idea of, you know, having screen time be separate from family time whenever possible, I think uh, it's really great to think about having sort of family rules around technology use and having mm-hmm. everyone adhere to that. <laughs> you know, parents spend mm-hmm. a lot of time saying, oh, my kid's on Fortnite too much, or, oh, I have to limit their screen time to one hour a day or zero time, you know, minutes a day or whatever it is. But then they have problems adhering <laughs> to that as well. Mm-hmm. You know, if we can let go of our guilt a little bit and our fear about the impact of technology, 
we can then step back and say, okay, you know, I am a digital citizen. We're all digital citizens if we use these technologies. You know, we as a family want to make a, a set of rules around that. We all adhere to it. And let's find something that feels good to all of us. You know, it can't be that my child's allowed zero screen time, but I'm on screens constantly or constantly using my device around them. And and so I'd say kind of taking that approach, having a family meeting about it and having it be a dialogue, you know, especially if we have slightly older kids who might have their own uh, sort of relationship with anxiety with their peer, uh, sorry, relationship with technology with their peers, Mm -hmm. they may say, listen, you know, um, mom, dad, you know, parent, a caregiver, you know, you don't want me to be on Instagram at all, but you should understand that if I'm going to be a good friend, I need to like my friend's posts and do X, Y, Z. And if I want to know where the party, you know, so if I, if right. I want to engage, here are my constraints and, you know, and then you can have a dialogue about how to create healthier habits around that, that you can say, okay, I get that, but you can't use it, you know, in bed <laughs> because right, that's going to disrupt right, your sleep, right. which is, you know, and you can at least have that dialogue, but you have to put it out on the table. And then, of course, with younger kids, it's less of a discussion. But but again, it should be rules that everyone in the family adheres to. Well, talk about that. You just said that for younger kids, it's less of a discussion, by which I assume you mean that it's more for parents to decide. It seems like at least some of the time that's not necessarily the case, that parents may either feel like they can't choose to restrict kids' use, maybe because of social pressure or for other reasons. You know, what would you say to parents who may who may be feeling uncertain about whether it's appropriate to limit use or whether they might be limiting their their young kids in some way, holding them back, depriving them of something they need. I think that might be a common Mm. belief. I get that concern. Um, You know, my thought on that is that technology is so readily available to our kids. They're so almost intuitively adept at it that we don't need to worry about, about them. You know, they need very little exposure to gain whatever expertise we imagine they need to have. And when it comes to to parenting and feeling that maybe you can't set limits or shouldn't or it's bad for them, one thing that I can say with 100% certainty from decades of parenting research and maybe everyone's intuition, many people's intuition will follow suit with this idea, is that parenting that is authoritative, that is about setting boundaries that are fair but firm where there's good communication and respect between parent and child, that is good parenting. <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. You know, and when you're, when you feel that you can't set boundaries for your child, you're doing them a disservice because children need and want healthy, firm, but flexible, but, but reasonable boundaries because that helps them navigate, you know, the uncertainty of the world. And so our job as parents is to, is to, at, when they're very young, especially is to give kids boundaries that are consistent that are um, understandable. I can't imagine a situation in which, as long as the boundaries are flexible, that limit setting could ever be a bad thing when it comes to making a decision as a parent around uh, technology exposure and screen time. And I'd also say follow your guts because, you know, we know, you know, follow your gut instinct that, oh, I, I feel like when my kid goes into that YouTube uh, cesspool <laughs> of like videos and, <laughs> and like, you know, kids watching, uh, you know, kids unwrap things or whatever, you know, and kids watching <laughs> other kids watch TikTok videos and it's just this and, and the crazy <laughs> algorithm of recommendations. I feel like it's not good, but they really love it. You know what? If you feel like it's not right. good, I think you're probably right that it's not good and follow your parental instinct. Right, right. It's digital sugar. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. So we've been talking a lot about what parents can do on a personal level. We have, you mentioned early on 
that there are ways in which technology itself can help contribute to positive well-being. And you mentioned this app, Personal Zen. I'd like to give you a chance to tell people a little bit about what it's about, what research is behind it, you know, and how it is consistent with and supports uh, what you've just been talking about. Yeah, thanks. I'd love to. Uh, so uh, Personal Zen is an app I developed and have been working on for the past seven years. And it takes this new technique that's called attention bias modification. It sounds horrible, <laughs> as a lot of our psychology <laughs> terms are. It sounds like some evil scientist, Stanley Milgram-esque, you know, manipulate. But, but really, it's very simple. It's this idea that when we're anxious or stressed, we develop these certain habits of attention. That's the attention bias. And that habit is to pay too much attention to things that are threatening or potentially threatening. And um, as we're scanning the environment and our world for those things, we get stuck on them and we have difficulty disengaging from them. So a, a perfect mm -hmm. example of this is if we have, you know, say we're giving a public speech and we have a strong attention bias. In an audience, there's always that one person, at least, who's in the back falling asleep or frowning <laughs> or, you know, and, and, and a person with a strong attention bias will just, they'll see that person fast. They'll get stuck on that right. person and they will, and here's the important part, they'll fail to notice the sea of smiling faces around them that are paying attention mm -hmm. and excited about what you're saying. And so it's like a filter, really, this attention bias, where we filter in too much of negative or potentially negative information at the expense of noticing positive opportunities around us. So this is something we all experience sometimes, but when you are uh, really anxious or chronically anxious or stressed, it becomes a habit and it becomes rigid. And so attention bias modification are a series of techniques that are designed to disrupt this habit of attention in very simple computerized exercises. And so what I did with Personal Zen was embed one of the most scientifically supported attention bias modification techniques into an engaging gamified format so that it was more accessible, mm. that people could do it on the go. And here's where it gets into sort of the concerns I have about technology and how it's designed it was designed to be a micro-intervention. That means to use very briefly instead of sucking you into that screen. So it's designed to be used a few minutes a day, a few days a week. And it was designed also because another barrier to access, uh, accessing treatment is stigma. You know, mental health, I believe, should be approached much like we approach our physical health as something positive to work towards. And it's really important to continue to destigmatize de mental illness and mental health struggles. And so we also created Personal Zen to be joyful, engaging, a mm. sort of meditative, uh, beautiful experience, because that's what the pursuit of, of mental wellness should be in my mind. We've conducted uh, five clinical trials on it now, randomized clinical trials, very um, well-controlled lab-based research. And we found that using Personal Zen um, briefly can immediately reduce stress and anxiety and also inoculate you against future stressful situations. We also did a special study uh, in pregnant women where we actually after the women used personal Zen on their own uh, for a month, a few minutes a day, a few days a week, we found that their stress hormone cortisol uh, was reduced mm. uh, compared to our placebo condition. So we have some good early indicators that this, this app, which embeds this scientific technique, can really work in the real world. Evidence is crucial because, you know, digital therapeutics right now are really the Wild West. There are a lot of things out there that have no evidence base. And they're being sold to people and pushed to people. And, you know, it's hard. You know, we have to help. We have to help people find the signal and the noise by using good science. Yeah, that's great. And so it is for uh, addressing anxiety. It sounds like it could be for people of any age, relatively. Yes, absolutely. 
Okay, great. And it is available where? It's up on the App Store now. We did a, I'll, I'll reveal, we did a soft launch. We were kind of like beta, mm-hmm. you know, we were making sure that bugs were worked out. But it's a brand new redesign. We just pushed it a few weeks ago up on the App Store. And we are just now finally uh, creating our Android version, which is now also about to be pushed to the Google Play Store. So all of that is coming in the, it's up on the App Store now. People can download and give it a try. And Android version will be coming in just a couple of weeks. That's great. I really love the fact that you mentioned that it's designed to be a micro intervention. And in the way that you've designed it, it doesn't keep you pulled in because we know that not just games now, although I think video games are probably the worst in the sense that they've been designed with the most effort to keep people coming back constantly to not ever have an end to them and to tap into those parts of our brain that pull us back into a repetitive activity. So I I really appreciate that you've designed this this way and that you've mentioned it to people that it's not only intended to not pull you in, but it sounds like you're saying it's designed in a way that it is not inclined to keep you pulled into it. Exactly. And, you know, as, as, you know, this is really, it's, this is all so new and all of us who are doing work in this area are trying to figure this out. But I think what, what, you know, I really, realized early on in my journey was that we're operating in this toxic digital ecosystem and none of us are talking about how toxic it is. You know, mm-hmm. we're just trying yes. to, you know, digitize and game. We're saying, oh, well, it's cheaper and it reduces barriers. So let's just get people on the screens and do CBT on the screens and do this on the screens. We've forgotten the perils uh, of the way that right. the ecosystem is designed, but also we've, we've forgotten what these, uh, tools, these devices, say mobile devices, for example, are optimized for, which is to be used briefly and on the go. So I think that develop these tools, more and more of us really need to stop trying to just translate analog, you know, long-term therapies like cognitive behavioral therapy, which should be, you know, eight weeks, gold standard. We should spend less energy translating those onto the screen and more energy actually using technology in the way that it should be, you know, is, is best for people, which is to have these brief interventions and micro interventions. Yes. Great. Well, great. And where else can people go to find out about you, what you're doing, your work, get in touch with you? Where can people find you? So I have a personal website uh, called dennistuari.com. So that's my personal website. And personalzen.com is also there to tell people all about personal zen and the evidence behind it and where to find it. Those are the two best places. I also blog on Psychology Today. Uh, my blog is called More Than a Feeling. And I also have a blog on uh, technology and wellness called Psyche's Circuitry, which is psychecircuitry.com. Oh, fantastic. Thanks for sharing. And, and thanks so much for being on the podcast. I, I really enjoyed speaking with you and learned a lot today. Uh, I went through some feeling of uh, despondency <laughs> in the beginning, you know, hearing you talk about, you know, just, just how uh, painful a lot of this can be, but then, you know, felt, felt some encouragement when you, you know, shared with us, not just about the app, but the other ways in which people can really take some positive action in their lives. So thank you so much. Thank you so much. What a pleasure to speak with you. Thanks so much for joining us for this episode of the Technology for Mindfulness podcast with me, Robert Plotkin, and today's guest, Dr. Tracy Dennis-Tawari, a professor of psychology and a digital mental health expert. You can find out more about Dr. Dennis-Tawari at dennistuari.com. That's D-E-N-N-I-S-T-I-W-A-R-Y.com. 
If you like today's episode, please subscribe, rate, and review, and share the episode with your friends. And don't forget to also check out our blog at technologyformindfulness.com for information and tips about science, technology, and mindfulness. You'll also be able to find out about our Tap Into Mindfulness course for helping you to take back control over how you use your smartphone at tapintomindfulness.com. I'm Robert Plotkin, and I'll join you next time on the Technology for Mindfulness podcast with three-time TEDx speaker and tech writer, David Ryan Polgar.